This program is a production of Restoring the Core, an initiative designed to assist those wishing to go deeper into classic Christianity, with resources available in a connected age, online at RestoringTheCore.com. This is the Lens of Glory, Class Session 7. Welcome to the Lens of Glory, a program dedicated to demonstrating that the Bible can be read through the lens of the glory of God. I'm Walter Hampel. This and all of the programs in this series of podcasts were recorded during Sunday School at Troy Christian Chapel in Troy, Michigan, the United States of America. The purpose of this class is to demonstrate the linkage between Jesus Christ and the glory of God as found in the Bible. Since the Bible shows us that it is written about and centers on Christ, the Bible also can be read with a viewpoint or lens, where we see that the glory of God is a dominating theme of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. A Christ-saturated Bible must also be a Bible which is filled with the glory of God. The following is the audio for this class session. Let's pray and give a few points of business and then we'll move on. Our Sovereign Lord, I do thank you that you've gathered us on this uh, cold January Sunday morning to study the things of your word and to see the glory behind it. I pray, enlighten our hearts and minds, and may we glorify you truly as we are doing this study and seeing your glory in the scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, last week ended off with a discussion about the nature of how the persons in the Trinity will actually glorify each other. That the glory of God is not just simply something that goes from humans to God in that direction, which of course it should. There's also that sense of the Son glorifying the Father, the Spirit glorifying the Son. So the glory of God is an intra-Trinitarian phenomenon, to use a nice big term. And I don't know how often we think about that, that in a sense God glorifies himself, but God glorifies himself by one person in the Trinity glorifying the other. I also had a reference to this article, which that's accurate, but um, kind of like, no, I'm not going to tell an accountant joke, but I might offend my wife. Uh, about <laughs> so I don't want to do that. Uh, no, she's here. Trust me. Uh, no, 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 no. It's like the force. You know. You know. You know. You know. So, at the behest of my wife, uh, she thought it'd be a good idea to run off copies. Now, I don't know if this is a copyright issue or not. So, if you have a copyright problem with it, uh, rip it up after you read it or something. I'm, I'm just saying. I just want to pass the information on. So. This is a copy of the article. I mean, if you want to go into online, feel free. But um, and then we'll split that up and go from there. For those who were here last week, was or were there any questions that you may have had about what we were covering? I know that we kind of had to end a little abruptly last time. And again, some of these concepts, 
don't say be new, because if they're completely new, it means they're making stuff up that nobody else has ever thought of in Christianity. And when people do that, they're usually called the leaders of a cult. <laughs> I do not want to be a leader of a cult. But, I, but in many cases, there are things that kind of ebb and flow in terms of how much they're thought of or how well they're known in Christianity, which is why reading people who have um, written in the past, centuries in the past, is often a great idea. Uh, there's, an, there's a preface to a book called it's Athanasius's On the Incarnation. And Athanasius was writing in the fourth century. And he was talking about his understanding of Jesus and sorry, Jesus and his incarnation as a human. And he's writing in the midst of a lot of the controversies that were going on in the fourth century about whether Jesus was the first created being of God and then from there. God says, okay, you're now my second in command. Go out and do the work of creation. And Athanasius very much held to the creeds of the time, which were the Nicene, well, it, it's the Nicene Creed as we understand it today. And he's writing out of the midst of that. So you've got one giant of the faith who's writing, and then you have a preface done by another giant of the faith, C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis's point, he's writing, I don't know when he did the preface, I'm guessing the 1940s or 50s, but it's mid-20th century. And he said that one of the things Christians really need to be careful about is having the sense of your own sense of time being a provincial. I, I don't know if you've ever heard the term. Provincial is usually used for people who are so locked into the things of their region the things of other regions, doesn't matter. Because where I'm living is the most important, of course. I'm living there. And Lewis's point was not only about where we are in space, but also in time. That there are things that people before us are going to be writing about different topics, different emphases, coming at this with a different mindset. Now, there's no guarantee that just because it's older that it's correct. However, Lewis's point is that each era has its own blind spots. I mean, think about, for example, American ministers in the southern United States circa 1840 through 1860 when it came to issues of slavery. A lot of them had blind spots that this was really a horrible evil. However, we in the early 21st century can look back and go, good heavens, what were you thinking? Now, if Jesus does not return for the next century or two, and people are looking at the history of Western culture in the early 21st century, and looking at what Christians have done, those who go after us in the faith might be looking back at this time and saying, good heavens, what were you thinking? How could you let these things go by? And where I'm going with all this is that there is that sense of, that you could have a sense of provincialism in time. So it's always a good thing to read the work of other Christians. Uh, again, different cultures, different genders, uh, different times. It gives you great perspective on just how universal the Christian faith is. So I, I highly recommend that. So a lot of what Mike Reeves brings up in the article, these are things that Christians have thought about in the past. 
But in a lot of cases, nowadays, for whatever reasons, some people think the Trinity is really a divisive issue, and it shouldn't be. It should not be. I mean, there are other things. I, I could give you a laundry list of things that will divide Christians. I could have a cat fight go, or, or a riot going in here just to, well, I believe in, like, give four things, and, and we'll, we'll all be, you know, tear each other's hair and leaving. But we don't want to do that because we're held together by the Word of Spirit. But um, it, it's a good thing to go through. The, I think the article really covers some really good points, so uh, keep that in mind. Let's move on. I want to talk about a few more points of God's actions in in glorifying himself, his actions in doing these things. I want, I'd like us to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Now, all scripture is indeed inspired by God. I think I can make the case, though, that based on what you're looking at, the doctrinal content the meat, so to speak, sometimes can be really dense in a few passages. This is one of them. So I'd just like us to just listen and, and take this in. Starting in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in, the, in accordance with the pleasure, with his pleasure and will. And I want you to take a look. There's a phrase that's going to keep repeating. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Think about what is being described here as what a Christian is given in Christ. And again, think about just even the very beginning of this wonderful list where he says, or Paul says, praise be, then this is verse 3, 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. I mean, if that isn't enough, it gets a lot better as you read through the list. And just exactly what Christ has done for us in terms of his love, in terms of predestination, and I'll leave that as an issue that will be untouched in this. It says it. I'm not, I'm not going to handle this one way or the other. Scripture states that work with it as you will. Um, you're on your own. You're, I'll say in this case you're on your own. I, I've, got my opinions, I've got my opinions, but I, this isn't a class in Walt's opinions, hopefully. Um, but to the praise of his glorious grace, according, but also in accordance with his pleasure and will. So, you know that when God accepts you in Christ, it's not like, and I'll use myself as an example, I don't want to pick my book today. Um, it's like, okay, Walt, you're a rotten SLD, but I'm going to let you in. <laughs> it's like, wow, he doesn't say that. It's in, it's in accordance with his pleasure and goodwill. Somehow, God wanting each one of us in Christ is according to his pleasure and his goodwill. So, think this is good? It gets even better. Again, the glorious grace which he's freely, not grudgingly given us, not like a fine grace. I mean, because I mean, imagine we do this in our own human relationships, don't we? I mean, if we're, we'll be honest, there are some people at some times that perhaps um, we've been kind of grudging with praise or help or just encouragement, but not so with God in Christ. In him we have redemption. We've been bought back. Imagine, redemption is the term, it's a slave term. That if you've been in slavery, and unfortunately there are way too many examples, thousands. I, I don't even have the numbers. I, if Patty or um, Karen were here, I'd ask them. Uh, just even in the human trafficking situation around the world, how many people are have been forced into that? Thousands, clearly. I don't know if the tenth of thousands. I, I, I actually don't have a scaled number. Twenty-seven million. Is the Twenty-seven million. Okay. You know, I should have known that. Okay. Should tell you today. Okay, okay, good. Let's give 27 million. Obviously, there's 27 million too many. But for every one of those who can be removed out of that, and that's only human trafficking, that's not other forms of slavery, it still do exist today, to be bought back out of that. And you've been bought back out of slavery to sin, and also to yourself. Because, let's face it, left to yourself without the grace of God, you are your own worst enemy. It's not, it's not a political system. It's not an economic system. It's you. You're, you're, look in the mirror if you want to see your own worst enemy without Christ. But that you have redemption. And all of this, what's the phrase that keeps repeating? To the praise of his glory. And again, uh, I just want to talk a little bit more about this because I think it's just so wonderful. I don't want to just skip it over. Talking about the riches of God's grace, which he lavished on us. When you lavish something on something, when you lavish gifts, what are we talking about? 
Pouring gifts. Pourings. So again, you don't have the idea that let's say it's Christmas and somebody sees it and has this little do they make still make Whitman samplers? Those little candy boxes? <laughs> I used to love those. I haven't seen them in a while, so I don't know if they still made them. But let's say somebody wraps up a little Whitman sampler and goes, ah, here, here you go. Merry Christmas. Like, boy, that's the spirit of the season, isn't it? <laughs> but that, you don't have that sense of this is what Christ is doing. He's not throwing us a spiritual version of a Whitman sampler. That he's lavishing these things on us with all wisdom and understanding. And... He made known to us the mystery of his will. And again, that's one thing you'd say, okay, I know there's a God out there. What does he want me to do? Uh, you want to really have a good understanding of the mystery of his will and how you can understand it? Pick up and read. Mm -hmm. Pick up and read. And God will guide you also in, in prayer. There, there will be unique things or things unique to your life which you will be guided on. And... He makes known to us that. And again, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Now, theologically, one might ask, is that happening now, or is that going to happen in the future? <clears throat> if I had to commit to that, I would say yes to both simultaneously. Uh, yes, this is already in place. It's already starting and it hasn't reached completion yet. But where I'm going with all this is the repetition of, to the, gotta find it, uh, I, have, I have an example written in my hands just a moment ago. To the praise of his glory. All of these things are to the praise of the glory of God, so that when we are redeemed from our sins, when we're having every spiritual blessing in Christ given us, when he lavishes these good gifts on us and brings us into his kingdom for his pleasure, it's to the praise of his glory. And again, these are the reasons God did what he did for us in Christ, to the praise of his glory. And again, I don't think you're going to find a richer vein or a richer section of scripture in terms of just magnificent glory and content of what we're told about the glory of God and what he has purposed to do in us to his own glory. Questions or comments? We've gone through a lot here. I mean, this is only 14 verses, but it's <clears throat> strong stuff. Sharon? I just want to mention that verse 8. I love the way Paul says that he lavished on us. This grace, that God's grace, was lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. In other words, he knew exactly what he was doing. He didn't do it as an impulse. He did it, he knew exactly what he was doing. And he, was, he did it with purpose. That's a great point. Uh, I mean, how many times do we get into something that we commit, and, you know, part of it might be that we're just completely naive, or, and that can happen almost at any age, or you just really didn't see the signs of what's going on, and then you're in the middle of it going, how on earth did I get stuck with fill in the blank? <laughs> and in this case, it's not a matter of God going, okay, Jesus, die for the sins of these people, and then as time goes by, going, what was I thinking? You, yeah, exactly. That's a great point. It's not. It's showing God's non-reluctance, not only His pleasure, but His non-reluctance in what He did for us. Rose, in verse ten, in the Amplified, it said, 
He planned for the maturity of the times and the climax of the ages to unify all things and head them up and consummate them in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth. So he planned for the maturity. He knew when Jacob was going to be born, when Isaac, and yes. he planned for all of that. He did. And I'm also going to be echoing that with something else I'm going to be saying in a few of the panels. I think I'll get to it today. But no, that's an excellent point. Thank you for um, anticipating where I wanted to go with that, at least in terms of how God acts in time toward us. Okay, let's continue on. God's actions in working miracles through Christ. Gospel of John. You'll find a lot about the glory of God in the Gospel of John. Probably one of the more concentrated areas that speak about God's glory. Okay, I think we're familiar with the account of what happens at the wedding feast of Cana. Young couples run out of wine. Bad, bad, bad faux pas in your in that time. You don't want to do that. That's like, okay, let's be honest. It's be like today if somebody has a cash bar and uh, they run out of beer, wine, and whiskey, and whatever else before the reception's over. It's like, Hour, the reception's got about four more hours to go, and they're bone dry. And a lot of people who like to go to the cash bar, they're, they're going to complain. It's like, what kind of wine reception do you want here? Um, it's something that people will remember. Mm -hmm. uh, my mom and dad, for example, uh, although nobody else in my relatives ever brought this up, my mom continually remembered to bring it up, that at my mom and dad's wedding reception, the cook got sloshed. <laughs> he was, and please understand, I'm, I'm not using any proper names because I don't even know the name of the person. So, you know, in case somehow somebody hears this on the podcast and goes, I know him, you're defaming my grandfather. <laughs> Nothing like that. I, I had no idea who this was. But the guy got apparently ripped. And when he was cooking, apparently the chicken that they were cooking was half cooked and stuff like that. And my mom, and apparently they ran out. Apparently the cook not only didn't cook it properly, they, they did not have enough. So her, the thing that she continually re remembered it, when she was doing a get-together at our house was to make sure we had enough food and to make sure it was cooked properly. It was a lesson that stuck with her all of her life. But again, you can think about that, that kind of faux pas. Let's say other people are talking about it. Uh, things that you don't want people to bring up. Oh, you know what? I can, I'm going to bring this up. Sorry. This isn't about our wedding, but, uh, but indirectly. No, this happened with my sister's wedding. We were trying to get a uh, wedding cake uh, for when Julie and I got married back in 89. And we thought we'd go through the uh, person who did the cake for my sister four years earlier. So Julie contacted this woman, and they, they talked and arranged things, and the woman said, oh, we tried to get a point of contact. So, oh, that wedding, that's the one where that guy died. No. And then Julie tells me this and said, guy, the guy died at Sydney and Ray's wedding. Like, really? I, I didn't hear anything about this. So we were talking to my mom and dad, I think it was a day or so later, and said, we were told that somebody died at the wedding. They go, oh, that's so exaggerated. I go, you're not denying it. You're not denying it. And it turned out that somebody had, had apparently had a little bit too much to drink and it, it counted, or what's the medical term, contraindicated with his medicine. And it was just, but he, he died the next day, unfortunately. 
Uh, but the thing is, that's something that people remember. If people die at your wedding, they're going to remember it. So, in this Jewish couple, they run out of wine, and here's Jesus who does this wonderful miracle for them. But here's reasoning behind it, all of that to get to this. In verse 11 of chapter 2, John writes, This, the first of the miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. So, in doing this miracle, he reveals his glory, and did it for the purpose of revealing his glory. More about the glory of God and God's purposes. God's purpose in preparing the way for Christ to come into the world and do his ministry. And I'd like just to take a look at a few cross-referencing passages. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. A passage we often hear during Christmas time, but I'd like us to maybe take the tinsel off this one and just do a little bit more of a, or a different kind of study with it. Isaiah writes, A voice of one calling, In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of God will be revealed, and all mankind will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So I've got this passage from Isaiah. Now, keeping that in mind, Let's forward over to Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Matthew writes, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea. Desert? Wilderness? And saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. So we see John as this fulfillment of what we see in Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. Remember, in the passage in Isaiah 3 through 5, all of this passage about the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make ready the way for the Lord. And it says that this is for the glory of God, to reveal the glory of God. So, we have Matthew saying this, but I also want us to take a look at John's version. He has a slightly different take on this, but it, I think it intensifies the point. Matthew, I believe, is correctly understanding, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the passage in Isaiah 40 does indeed refer to John the Baptist. However, we get to hear it from the person himself and understand this. I think it's kind of interesting. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. Now, this was John's testimony. Now, this is John the Baptist. So just keep this in mind. This could be confusing. This is the Gospel of John, written by an apostle, however, speaking about John the Baptist. Same name, two different people. Now, this was John the Baptist's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. We'll stop there for a moment. 
Think about how many cult members or cult leaders would never say that. Just for what it's worth. Um, the th they'll tell you that there's some incarnation of Christ or the second appearing or the third or whatever, reincarnation. But here's John saying, nope, not me. Verse 21, he says, they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And this is referring to Moses' reference at the end of the book of Deuteronomy that says that there will be a prophet just like him and that the people need to listen to him. And they were waiting all those years. So they're going, like, who are you? Elijah? No. Are you this, the prophet Moses predicted? He answered, no. <clears throat> Finally they said, who are you? Give us an answer. We came back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied, John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Uh, let me fast forward to verse 29. So we have John himself looking at the passage of Isaiah and saying, this is me. I'm its fulfillment. So it's not only Matthew by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit saying that, John himself says that. And so of course, we, you know, if we move up to verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he says, this is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me who has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Remember the passage as it's found in Isaiah. The, the one who's the voice crying in the wilderness is doing this for the purpose of revealing the glory of God to the people. And that's exactly what he did. He reveals Christ. So again, just showing that God's purpose in preparing the way for Christ by using the passage in Isaiah and having it fulfilled with John the Baptist is a way of revealing the glory of God to the people of Israel and to us because of the testimony of John. We have what I like to call an Old Testament version of the Great Commission. And it's to declare God's glory among the nations. Let's just take a look at two passages, one obviously more briefly because it's only a few verses. The first Chronicles passage is going to take a little bit of time to work through, but I think truly quite worth it. Let's go to Isaiah 66. When you read through Isaiah, especially the, la the very latter chapters of 66, read those and then read the book of Revelation right at the end, the last few chapters of Revelation you're going to find some remarkable, remarkable overlap and parallels. So if you think that something's only being covered by John in the book of Revelation, probably not. It's probably in Isaiah as well. So it's this great way of God providing multiple testimony of things, especially about the future. Uh, Isaiah 66 verses, page, here we go. And I, because of their actions and their imaginations, I'm about to come, and this is God speaking, and I, because of their actions and their imaginations, I'm about to come and gather all nations and tongues, and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and they will send some of those who survive to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans, and Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece, 
and to the distant islands that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations, and they will bring all your brothers from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord, um, horses and chariots, wagons, not mules, says the Lord. They will bring them as the Israelites bring grain offerings to the temple in ceremonially clean vessels. And I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. But where I'm going with this is that there is a sense in which the people, peoples being gathered out of the nations is for the glory of God. So you will have this putting forth of this message about God to the nations so that the nations can, in a sense, be gathered. One of the things to consider, and I, I really like in particular one of the verses, and I think it's in Keith and Kristen Getty's song, In Christ Alone, that talks about how Jesus will finally get what's coming to him in the best sense. The inheritance of nations. Mm -hmm. The gathering of the nations is Christ's inheritance. And this is being done for his glory. And you see this here in Isaiah. I think you see even more detail in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 8 through 36. So let's go there as well. 1 Chronicles chapter 16. Let me just give you some brief context of this. David has brought the ark to Jerusalem. It's now set up in a tent near the uh, king's palace. And David has given the Levites a different function than they had before under Moses. So if you remember, under, under the time of Moses, what kind of structure did they have for worshiping God? Just a tent. And it was something that, because it's a tent, would it stay in one place all the time? No, it's just something that God at his command would say, you know, time to pack up and leave, we're going this way. And the Levites had particular roles in terms of, and I forget which uh, one of uh, Levi's, they were, they were broken up into clans, three different sons, and they had different functions in terms of what's the stuff you're going to carry. And one of them was set up to carry the, uh, the truly holy objects, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the lampstand, things of that sort. Others were to pick up the uh, tent pegs, others the cloth of the tent and the like. But the tabernacle is a temporary operation. So when you finally get to Jerusalem, when you, you get to the point of David being in Jerusalem, he's on the verge of wanting to build a temple. And remember, does God allow him to do that or not? doesn't. It's going to be up to Solomon. But the site pretty much has been laid out, for lack of a better term. It's, it's kind of like for those of us who would remember back in, pick the right year for this, uh, 1990, oh, pick a year, 1996. This very ground, this room location, was this room standing in 1996? Still wasn't, no, we hadn't done the church expansion yet. This was part of the parking lot. We get was, it was part of the parking lot. So it would be one thing for like somebody to kind of chalk this off and go, like, okay, one day this building, this permanent thing is going to be here. And of course, we're now the recipients of that. In the same way, it was understood the temple is going to be in Jerusalem. It's just not 
David who's going to build it, despite the fact he wants to. And he puts a lot of planning and effort into its building, including basically emptying his personal coffers and, and treasures in order to pay for it. But what happens is you have, with this change that happens, what are you going to do with the Levites whose job was, uh, okay, when God tells us to move, pick up the tent pegs and grab up the tent and walk. If everything's permanent, you've just lost your job. You're unemployed. This is an unemployed Levite. What a horrible thing. So what David does, by God's inspiration, is to change the function of what they do. They're now no longer just uh, Levi's movers and carriers. They are now Levi, or God's, praise, praisers and giving of thanks to people. Or <laughs> Those who give thanks to God. So, in doing so, David gives them a song. Now, interesting thing about this song is that you will not find this song in its in the form you find it here in Second excuse me, First Chronicles, anywhere in the Psalter. The content of this song is in three different psalms: Psalm 96, 105, and 106. But even there, it's interspersed with other text. So. What I want to do is go through this, and I want to show you something about the nature of taking message to the nations. The idea of the Great Commission that we know of in the New Testament is not unique to Scripture. Remember, the people of Israel were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. And as a rule, they pretty much failed at that. However, just because they failed doesn't mean God wasn't still going to work through them. But listen to what the psalm says. Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. We're going to return to that. Sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he pronounced. O descendants of Israel, his servant, O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant he made with Abraham, the oath he swore to Isaac, he confirmed it to Jacob as a decree, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion you will inherit. When they were but few in number, few indeed and strangers in it, they wandered from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another. He allowed no man to oppress them. For their sake he rebuked kings. Do not touch my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and joy in his dwelling place. Ascribe to the Lord, O family of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. 
Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea resound in all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then the trees of the forest will sing. They will sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Cry out, save us, O God, our Savior, and gather us and deliver us from the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and we may glory in your praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praise the Lord. I think this is one of the most remarkable passages of Scripture when it talks about the glory of God and the way that God's people are called to declare his glory among the nations. Now, let me jump in with the uh, Great Commission right now. Think about what we understand as the Great Commission. What, what's being done? What's Christ looking for from his people when he... Go, to spread the gospel, to make his name known, and reconciliation between God and man through Jesus Christ. Exactly. The good news, to let the, to let the nations know what Christ has done for them, or what God has done for them in Christ. Now, I will make the point that when you're telling the account of what God has done in Christ with his birth, his life on earth, his suffering for us, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. These are the most glorious accounts of what God has done for us and doing for that and doing this in Jesus Christ. When we are fulfilling the Great Commission, even in the New Testament sense, we are declaring his glory among the nations. That the purpose of what God wants us to do with this information is not to sit on it. It's to let others know around the world. Now, if you think about this, is there any place on earth that God does not deserve sovereign rights over? Any place. Islamic countries? Hindu. He, he, he deserves to be ruler over that, right? So, it, thank you, and it makes sense that if he owns all this, if he rules all this, that his ambassadors would take the good news and proclamation of that to everyone around the world. And this is declaring his glory among the nations. And again, what I see here with the Old Testament is that it doesn't have the specifics of the gospel yet, because at least in terms of time and space for us, they hadn't happened yet. But the idea of God's people declaring his glory to the nations is present. I mean, you find it here explicitly in 2 Chronicles. I keep saying 1 Chronicles, sorry. Why do I say that? I know better than that. But this whole idea also at the end of the passage where it talks about where God will gather his people from the nations. The reason this is going to happen is Remember, as I think the Gettys got it quite correctly, the nations are the inheritance of Christ. 
This is his reward from his father for what he's done. So as a result, there needs to be the proclamation of what Christ has done so that people will be in those nations who actually will have believed it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So that's why the Great Commission is, it's more than just getting the gospel out. And trust me, that, that is it. And there's, that's prime. There's also the sense of bringing the message to lost sinners. That's crucial. I think I can make the case from Scripture that even above these two points, doing the Great Commission that Jesus gives us is to declare His glory among the nations. And that that's God's top priority. <clears throat> Jesus will be glorified in the message of the gospel being spread around the world. And please understand, all of these things tie in. So it's not as if, for example, you say, well, what about the condition of lost sinners? Like, don't they count? It's like, well, yeah, they do, of course. But what brings them the message of hope and transformation in Christ is a message that also brings Christ's glory among the nations. And that the nations will be gathered, because it's exactly what it says here at the end of the psalm, where the prayer is, gather us from the nations, Lord. Because you have the sense almost of the passage of time where these, those who carry the gospel go out to the nations, but at some point in history, those nations will be gathered together as one people in Christ. So there's the spreading out, and there, then there's the sense of the gathering. If you think about that, and, you know, there are people who will tell you what they think heaven is like. I, I don't know how many books are out now currently about, I, I have my 15 minutes in heaven, or I, I, I don't know. I, I'll try to be, I'll try to be charitable. I, I don't know. Let it go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> however, however, I think it's fair to reflect on what scripture shows must be the case for what this is going to be like. So if we have people from every nation and from every time in standing before the throne, as we stand before the throne and worship for what goes beyond our concept of time, we may very well have somebody who was a 5th century blacksmith, a 22nd century information technology person, an 18th century farmer. Just pick the time, pick the place, pick, the, pick what they do, standing next to us, all singing the praises of God. The gathering from across time and across, for the better term, space, around the world. One people finally praising the Lord. That's what you're seeing here, the culmination of the, the Great Commission, not only in the Old Testament sense, but in the New Testament sense as well. So, those books that you see, they might be right, but reflect on this. I think this gives us at least something more certain to work with one way or the other. Randy? Well, the other thing that I find fascinating is this, that it's not just the human creation. It's everything that the Lord Jesus has made. Earth, sky, sea, trees, animals, in their own way. If you look at this, to me it says everything will... And it says over again, the trees will clap their hands. Right. And I don't think that's just alliteration. I think that 
because the creation is going to praise God for everything that God has done. And the Lord, through the Lord Jesus, is creating everything. It's going to give that praise back to him at some point in time. Uh, you're right. Uh, there's a passage, I'm actually drawing a blank in which uh, chapter is in the book of Romans. Uh, rather than trying to burn my no, synapses on, it's the book of Romans where Paul writes that creation has been subjected to futility mm -hmm. basically until the time of consummation of, of all things, or restoration of all things, and that it does include creation in a very special way. Um, I made reference earlier to Isaiah and to Revelation, where if you take a look at the end chapters of both, mm -hmm. talks about a new heaven and a new earth. That there is going to be this sense of restoration that involves all of creation. And somehow, and I don't know how to describe this, the sin that Adam and Eve did somehow subjected physical creation to futility. It, it, it put it under decay, for lack of a better term. Uh, when you see the descriptions of the new heavens and the new earth, for example, the new Jerusalem, it's a cube, fifth well, by our measure, it's 1,500 miles on a side. 1,500, that's roughly the distance from, like, here to Denver. I mean, we're not talking about a small little village that's going to be off somewhere in the cosmos. Mm -hmm. The New Jerusalem, according to the descriptions found in Revelation, and again, this may be apocalyptic uh, symbolism, but if this, if, if this is a literal description of it, it has to be in a universe that does not exist with the current laws of physics. So we go, what does that mean? You can't have a cube 1,500 miles on each side and have it remain a cube with the rules of our universe. If you have something that's that massive, it begins to collapse in on itself. That's why, for example, you take a look at a picture of the moon, or the sun, or the planets, or the earth itself. They're all basically spheres. When you've got that much mass, things collapse down into the smallest amount of uh, what's called potential energy that's there. And that happens to be pretty much a sphere. But if you have a cube 1,500 miles on a side, and it remains a cube, the laws of physics have to have changed. That which subjects us to decay and futility has to have changed. I mean, think about even our own lives. Um, even if we you know, take our vitamins, do exercise, all that, maybe, maybe, maybe we could squeeze out 120 years of our lifespan. But even after that, it's, I think there's a process called apoptosis that basically takes out our ability to reproduce DNA, and it's basically the terminus of our physical life. That's not going to happen with a resurrected body. And think about what happens with Christ now. Christ is raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit sometime probably between the years 30 and 33 AD. And think about this. Human being, divine and still human, but a resurrected human, he's in heaven with the same body and living. And how many years has it been? Almost 2,000 since he went back to heaven. You've got a resurrected body that is now designed for literally eternal life. Mm -hmm. Our human bodies now aren't. They have to be changed. So again, showing, and I think, great point, Randy, it's more than just us. It's a creation as well. Mm -hmm. Susan, did you have your hand? I, I don't know if you... 
Me? Yeah. Well, I did have something. I'm Please, saying. go ahead. I was going to say is um, the point that you were making about is, is Jesus' reward countries that are now Islam and communist and all that. And um, there, I just have such an admiration for people who grew up in that culture and have come to know Christ and how bold enough to start spreading that gospel now mm -hmm. and, and to even deny <coughs> that the parents taught them. I mean, that to me is so bold and so available to the Holy Spirit. It, it is. It is. Uh, it does take a certain amount of, mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of the right word for it, I'd say careful thought that when you are raised with a certain set of values, be they political, religious, uh, cultural, whatever. But if you come to a conclusion that, you know what, for as much as you've loved your mom and dad or your family, that in some cases, they simply got it wrong. In, in, in certain instances, it, you cannot abide with that just because you're trying to stay part of the family or part of the culture or whatever. But especially for people in the Islamic culture, it's, I mean, uh, for people who are in a completely dominated Islamic culture, to leave Islam is equivalent of a death sentence. And even now, uh, and I know we've covered this uh, over the last few months, I know Sharon brought this up a few months ago during the uh, missions emphasis time at church. There are numerous accounts of people, especially in the Middle East, who are hearing a voice in a dream. And sometimes they believe it's Jesus, sometimes it's someone else who's giving them instructions to go to a specific human being by name in a specific location to hear the gospel. Sounds very much like what happened with Cornelius in the book of Acts. Extremely like that. Now, this doesn't preclude the idea that uh, we still need to have missionaries on the ground, like feet on the ground kind of thing, and people telling people. But even then, think about what God's doing supernaturally. He is making it available for these people not to be given the gospel in a sense supernaturally. It's not like they're giving the message supernaturally. But supernaturally, they're told how to get access to it from another human being. And they're bypassing perhaps normal channels, for lack of a better term. That's how desirous God is for the inheritance for his son. That he is willing to not only use people who will sit down, do the study, get, the, get their passports, set up shops, so to speak, and live in these places, but also God directly telling them, go to so-and-so's place, so-and-so's church, such-and-such such a time, and you'll hear the message of life. Amen. These things happen. Sharon? That also relieves also the anxiety that we have to spread the gospel. Because this tells me, those stories tell me, that God's already at work in the people that he's sending us to. And that he's 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 the supernatural power that will in, that will works with us as we obey his command to spread the gospel. Absolutely, it, it takes. Uh, yeah, Julie, go ahead, and then I've got one last well, comment. I'll finish. Example of what Sharon is saying. There, I think there's a lot of freedom in that. That we don't have to look for somebody. To, okay, I need to give the gospel to this person. If they don't accept it, I need to keep working on that. I think we need to keep our eyes open for opportunities, and God may not have you be called to give the gospel message to the person that you're thinking you need to, but you do need to keep 
your eyes open for opportunities because it's, it's not like we're lone rangers in this. We're called to do this. This is something we're supposed to do. And, and sometimes the people around you are not the ones that are, are going to be listening to it. Sometimes their ears are closed, but we need to be ready. That's, that's true. One last thing I'd like to leave you with, because I know we're running slightly over time. Think about how a glory-based understanding of what Christ has done for us can shift the way that we tell the gospel to people. If we go at this with a perception of, oh, there's somebody I gotta give them the gospel, and then they cross your mind once or twice. As opposed to look at the wonderful things that God has done, not only for me, for my family, for my community, for the world and bringing Christ. Don't you want people to know about something like this? If something wonderful crosses your path, let's say birth of a child or a grandchild, uh, your team wins a Super Bowl or a Stanley Cup, and whatever. You want to tell people about this. And also, like Julie was saying, understand God's desire that his glory be made known is far more vast than your desire for it to be made known. Your desire is riddled with sin, imperfection, other things that hold it back. God's is not. And the fact that he is privileging us to be a part of that process, I just find glorious and phenomenal. And if you see that as declaring his glory as opposed to, okay, I've got to get another soul in my spiritual notch belt or on my gun, I think it makes a big difference when we see this as we're sharing his glory and not doing the duty. So I'll leave you with that. God bless you and we'll see you next week. That is all for this session. The PowerPoints which I used for this class will be posted on both the Restoring the Core website as well as the School of the Solitary Place blog. Thank you for listening to this program. We can be contacted at mail at restoringthecore.com. We're on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash restoringthecore. You can also follow us on Twitter at RestoreTheCore. Our original blog is still active. It can be found at schoolofthesolitaryplace.blogspot.com. Thank you for listening. We hope you join us next time for The Lens of Glory.